You're listening to Blissful Prospecting, and today I'm talking to Bilal Batrawi about what he's learned as a seven-time founding sales member. Sales is a really interesting career path because, you know, when I was in college, I wanted to be a forensic scientist and there was a pretty clear path to doing that. I had to, you know, get a criminology degree and, you know, focus on, you know, learning more about law enforcement, like how that stuff works. Cause you end up working at a police station or for like a state police, you know, or an FBI, you know, kind of situation. So there's a very clear path education wise on how to do that. And like the type of schools that you need to go to and the certifications you need to get after school. Uh, and it was really not unlike if someone wanted to become, I don't know, a psychologist or a doctor or a lawyer, there's a very clear path in school. Sales is one of those weird things because most of the really successful salespeople I know don't even have college degrees. I, I don't have a college degree. I didn't go to school to learn how to sell. And there aren't really trade schools out there that teach you how to sell. Yet at the same time, to be successful in sales, we have to treat it like a trade. You know, we have to treat it like something that we um, really have to be self-accountable for our own learning, whether that's reading books, training, paying for coaching, or whatever it is, even if our companies don't provide it. That's sort of the normal thing that we do. And what I'm excited to talk about today with our guest, Bilal, um, who's just a super badass dude. I, I met him through LinkedIn. And we just talked on and off and, and really you know clicked. And I wanted to get him on the podcast and have him talk about what he's learned as a seven-time founding sales member. So he's been on those sales teams seven times where he is one of the first people in the crew and really had to teach himself how to do a lot of stuff. And he was fortunate to have a great you know, mentor and that sort of thing. But before we get into that, uh, if you're listening to the podcast for the first time, my name is Jason Bay. And what we do in Blissful Prospecting and what I believe in is thinking outside the script. So when we go to set meetings, like how can we do this in a way that is different from 99% of what people are normally going to be exposed to, which is oftentimes really bad sales experiences. So I want to give you proven tactics and strategies to help you set more meetings with your ideal clients. And that's exactly what you're going to get a ton of when you listen to this interview with Bilal, because really what we dig into is not only the stuff that he's learned, but it naturally progresses into a lot of prospecting conversation around stories and knowing the buyer's journey and really focusing on who the message is for. And I learned so much in this interview. I took tons of notes. So I think you're really going to dig it. Before we get to the interview, if you want to check out the show notes and other goodies on our website, like the reply method framework, which is a guide that you can use to write better cold emails and make better cold calls, check that out at blissfulprospecting.com slash podcast. And let's get into the interview. So one of the reasons why I really wanted to interview you, man, is we've talked, well, first off, thank you for the, uh, I, I got the coffee cup. The, uh, oh, that you yeah. sent me. <laughs> Dude, my pleasure, man. That's the least I could do. It's the least yeah. I could do. I was like, it's such a lame gift. I was like, I'm so, but I'm like, what else do I send it? What do you send another guy? I don't know. Here's yeah. a coffee cup. <laughs> yeah. No, it was, it was one of those, uh, what's the brand name? It's uh, uh, Yeti. Yeti, the Yetis. So they're based here in Austin. So, oh, but, yeah. uh, so yeah, we've talked a couple of times and what I was really excited to talk to you about is, I mean, you get really fired up about certain stuff and you're pretty open book on LinkedIn, yeah. Yeah. but a good place to start might be, um, one thing that really sticks out to me is this fact that, and I read this on your LinkedIn profile that you're a seven time 
founding sales member. So you have this really unique experience of being like one of the first few hires at a lot of different companies in the sales department. Yeah. yeah. What's that like? Why do you choose to torture yourself so much? <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. Oh my God. I'm going to be thinking tonight about my life decisions. <laughs> um, uh, you know what? It's, it's probably because when you're in that startup sales world, it's a lot more um, puzzles, like puzzle solving and problem solving than it is traditional sales. And I love puzzles. I, I like being in an environment where there's more questions than answers, more to do than time to do it. And when I go to like an executive, I'm like, what do you think of this? They go, I don't know. <laughs> that's why we hired you. You go figure it out. I love that. Like, that's the greatest answer on the planet to me. It's like, oh, cool. I get to go do this. Um, so that, that to me is a lot of fun. And I've just, you know, once you've done it a couple of times, you can find out you're good at it. Like, man, why not make a career out of this? Yeah, it's, I haven't really worked for a super large corporation. Most of the companies, well, I've really only worked at one other company. It was CollegeWorks Painting. You know, they're about a $35 million company, but it's a very like startup type of culture where I got to, as a when I was their marketing and sales director, like just do a lot of stuff from scratch and had to learn how to do a lot of the stuff and you know, nice. kind of created the job description, so to speak. So uh, I really dig that type of thing too. But I read on your LinkedIn also, you're an economics major so did did part of that have to do with like the problem solving around numbers and like this understanding of more economic, like where did the problem solving gene come from for you? Yeah. It, you know what? It didn't hurt because that definitely was economics. Economics was definitely like um, you don't in economics, you don't study, you don't, you study business theory applicable to real world market conditions. So yeah. it's very, very, very fun. When, when you're, when you like that kind of mindset and I come from a family of like engineers, like, like my mother's side of the family are all different types of engineers, electrical, nuclear, civil. So it's just, I guess it's kind of like the environment I grew up in and, and just, you know, uh, being used to that kind of stuff. That's, that stuff is fun to me. And, um, you know, I, I'll like, I'm a Legos kid, you know, I was that kid that like could play hours upon hours with Legos, just taking apart and building all sorts of crazy stuff. That was fun to me. And this, when I'm in that startup environment, it feels like Legos. It feels like I get to do the building blocks and make something cool. And it, I've got some of the pieces and I can go get some of the other pieces I need and just put it all together. I like that, dude. So, so you grew up in a family of like engineers and like, it sounds like pretty analytical type yeah. of folks. So how does someone like you get into sales then? Oh, like the rest of us, man, it was the only thing that was hiring, you know, when I got out of university, I mean, it was just like, you, you get out with an econ major and you're like, okay, now what? Right. And yeah. I go to the job fair and the only company that's even remotely respectable at the job fair that was, that was presenting itself in, in some fashion that they were serious about hiring me was this startup called Trinet. And they were hiring for sales development reps. And I was like, I'm, I mean, they don't require any experience. So might as well. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and you know, I, I apply, I get a call back. I went in and did the interview and then they hired me and, by the time I got my first commission check, I was like, Oh, okay. This isn't too bad. This isn't too bad at all. Next thing you know, my first year I was making more money than any of my friends. And I'm like, I guess I'm, I guess I'm in sales. This is what it's going to be. What did you think that sales was at that time? Oh, like everyone, man. I was like, this is some grimy stuff that, you know, like the used car salesman for sure. Yeah. I had that in my head. You know, the, the, the people yep. that work those booths at the mall, I mean, you know, I'm going to be like, you know, slinging free samples of perfume or something, you know, like I'm going to be that annoying person. But 
what was interesting was I had a, I was very lucky I had a good manager and it's amazing what a good manager will do to your sales career because sales everyone makes this mistake it's it's not it's not um, it's not like engineering or or being a doctor or a lawyer where you get certified and you get a degree right there's no establishment like that in sales sales is more like carpentry you have to go learn from a master carpenter if you want to be a great carpenter that's how it works right if i want to learn archery sure anyone can do archery you just need two hands right you could technically anyone can do it but if you want to do it well you need to go learn very specific skills and technique it's a trade skill right it's a trade mm-hmm. skill that you have to go learn and practice so sales is one of those things where you learn like from mentor mentee relationships that's the best way to become an like an insanely good seller and i just got very lucky that my first sales manager happened to be an insanely good mentor as well what did your parents think of you getting into sales oh they hate it my mom was like how long is this for even till today man with everything i've accomplished everything i have accomplished um do they understand exactly what you do though no I know okay. they yeah. like, I, I think like, I think in my mother's mind, she knows that I'm like a step above a used car salesman, but like not much. And I swear if yeah. I got an MBA, she, I couldn't make her proud. I couldn't make her proud if I just did that. Like, yeah. I'm just not certified in her mind, <laughs> like successful yet, even with everything I've done. Are you an immigrant? Yeah, yeah. My parents immigrated from Egypt to here. I was the first of my family born in the U.S. My older sister was okay. born in Egypt. So this is I'm very. I'm not an immigrant. My mom was an immigrant, but my wife uh, is an immigrant, and okay. the it seems to. I know this is a total stereotype, but the parents they have a really high <laughs> expectations typically. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they're yeah. like, I, I made the ultimate sacrifice coming over here, dude. You better right. become a doctor or a lawyer or something. Right. I'd be proud yeah. of, you know? <laughs> totally, totally. I remember, I remember like my seventh year of sales, I made more than like my dad did as a dentist. Oh, and wow. I showed my mom my like W-2 and she was just like, she kind of shook her head and she was like, you know, but your father's a doctor. <laughs> you know, it was yeah. like, it was like, it's still not good enough. You know, because you're not a doctor. And yeah. I was like, mom, like, come on. Yeah. No, I love it, dude. So you mentioned something there around like finding a good manager and a mentor. And it's really interesting because a lot of the, I was, I was watching this, it was a YouTube video. And it was a psychologist or a doctor or someone talking about how from ages zero to seven, a lot of our learning is subconscious in terms of just being purely observational, right? Like you learn a lot of, there's so many things that you need to learn that there, you would never be able to learn those things by taking a course or reading. It's just like learned behavior. And when you brought that up, I didn't really think about the fact that early on in your sales career, like being able to observe what success, like what good and bad looks like you learn so much quicker than reading sales books, going to trainings, or even your, your, your company's training, like being able to ride shotgun and be able to see that. Is that sort of what you were talking about around like having a good leader and being able to see and, and the Absolutely. carpenter type of thing that you're talking about? Yeah. Cause it's monkey see monkey do like, yeah. I, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't know what sales was as many people enter sales, you know, are in the same situation. So you will be completely, uh, it, so let me be even more specific. My, the guy who managed me was fantastic. His name is Joe Bush, was a fantastic manager, but I still learn horrible, bad sales practices from our internal sales training. Like I learned to be the like product vomiting seller. 
Yeah. Right. That just is all features and, and all that kind of stuff. And it took me a while, almost three years to really unlearn a lot of bad habits that I learned as a seller early on, even with a great mentor. But the great mentor challenged me to think about my sales style and what I was trying to be and the fact that they were going to buy me before they bought the company. He really got that into my head. And I just have a knack for psychology. I always enjoyed psychology. I could have, I had a minor in psychology in university. My wife uh, has a master's in psychology. So it's just been something that I've always, and that stuff was the stuff that carried me through my bad sales training because it was the opposite. Like whatever I learned in psychology, it was like the opposite of what they taught me in the sales training and vice versa. Like what they taught me in sales training did not gel with the psychology I knew. Oh, really? Your wife, is she a uh, psychologist? Yeah, so she's a counselor uh, okay. over at Grady Hospital here in Atlanta. Interesting. I remember talking to you about that. Um, yeah. Dude, there's a bunch that we could dig into, actually, but I'm curious. You said the psychology didn't match the training. Um, do you find that a lot of like your experience on being on the receiving end of sales training, that it doesn't incorporate like the least bit of behavioral science or psychology or anything, and it's like these regurgitated... Okay. You mentioned something on, I think it was the predictable revenue podcast with Colin, where you said something about, you know, just because that's the practice doesn't mean it's the best practice. You had some sort of thing that you said around that. Common practices are very rarely in sales, the best practice. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about that. What do you think is the, is the problem there with sales training? You talked about it not incorporating the psychology and like that sort of stuff, but what do you think is at the root of the problem and how companies train salespeople right now? Well, th- like this is this is the fundamental flaw. Like we could give the most generic sales training that could apply to a very large portion of companies without even knowing what those companies do. This is the normal training. You start on you know week one, you get some HR stuff done. They give you your laptop. And then they, they give you some background on the company. In week two, you sit in through a class and they tell you all about the product and everything. And then by week three, you're sitting with another seller listening to their calls. And like a week four, you get your leads. Right? That's completely wrong. Like, yeah. that book is 100% wrong for one main reason. Something they call in psychology the curse of knowledge. The curse of knowledge is very simple. When you know something, your context of that knowledge skews your ability to explain it to somebody else who doesn't know that thing. And the the experiment that they did in psychology was they told a group of people to whistle happy birthday, right? The tune that we all know to a bunch of people who didn't know what they were um, whistling. And it turns out that almost nobody listening to the whistling knew what the heck those people were, what tune they were whistling. When the people who were whistling all thought, that they made it really clear to the other person that they were whistling happy birthday, right? Because they were cursed with knowledge. Those people knew the song, the others didn't, and they couldn't pick up on it. Now, you're, you as a seller, by definition, spend most of your time selling to people who are unaware of your product. The last thing you want to be is cursed with knowledge because that will in, disable and inhibit your ability to effectively communicate with those people. And the first thing companies do is curse their sellers with knowledge. Right? So you're talking product knowledge, all of the normal yeah. like sales training. Most of the companies we end up working with, I say, hey, you know, what kind of training regimen do you have? Like, what's the, the training cadence look like? Yeah, we do sales training every week. I'm, oh, awesome. You know, I'm like, what do you guys talk about? Oh, it's, you know, it's mostly product training and we're, we're telling about the new stuff. I'm like, so you spend no time. And then I think this is where you're going we're shouldn't we learn about who our prospects are 
and wild idea what challenges are <laughs> and why they even decide to use a product like ours in the first place. Yes. Um, so what do you suggest? Cause this is a challenge I have with the people that we coach is I'm helping them unlearn a lot of yeah. those things. Yeah. And it's so foreign to them not to go into, well, our analytics dashboard uh, will help right. your KPIs and it'll right. be able to boost your our paperless solution can <laughs> save you know, and you're like, no, 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 no. <laughs> so how do you just, and, and maybe start with how you've learned some of this stuff. I'm really curious because it sounded like you had to go through this journey yourself. How did you unlearn the, I need to skip the features and benefits like bullshit and I need to more focus on like, what are the actual core like needs and challenges that my prospects have? And like, what is the result that we end up helping them with? How did you approach learning that? And, and like, what advice do you have for someone that's kind of in that phase right now? Like trying to learn this, it's almost like learning a new language for them. It is. It's really hard to get away from something that you like you, you were just trained on. It's really yeah. hard. Unlearning is, is more difficult than learning. Yeah. Like it's easier to take somebody who doesn't know and teach them than to take somebody who's learned incorrectly, back all that up and then get them to the right spot. Um, it's very rare that it wouldn't be that case. So there's two things, two things, two ways to remedy the curse of knowledge. The first one is teaching through stories, not product features. What our customers do. And this relates to a very simple concept in psychology that I got taught through corporate visions. And I, I really appreciate that training I got early on in my sales career, but it came a little too late. I needed a little bit earlier, which is this idea of like is, does, means, right? Your product is, your product does, but what your product means. So classic examples like Tylenol, right? Tylenol is like S-amphetamine, right? Or something. I mean, none of us even know, right? Because nobody cares. What it does is it's a pain reliever and it's a headache reducer. What it means and what the ad is, is a mother sitting there in the afternoon rubbing her template and then she pops the Tylenol and all of a sudden that like sapient filter goes away and everything comes back in color and she's outside playing with her kids in the backyard, right? It means having that afternoon playtime when you have a headache, right? That's what it means. And that is a story, right? It's a story about the buyer and what they are trying to accomplish. Not the fact that S-amphetamine helps relieve your headache because nobody cares, right? So, so great marketing and great selling is what it means to your buyer, right? And that's the story behind what happened. And then the second remedy after you do that is, does, means is understanding the buyer's journey, which again, nobody taught me this early in my sales training and it was kind of silly. The buyer's journey is universal whether it's a stick of gum, a house, or a piece of software, we go through the same five stages, unaware, aware, consideration, evaluation, decision. I love that you started with unaware, by the way, because most people that have not done a lot of outbound don't ever consider that stage that the person I'm reaching out to, they didn't sign up to <laughs> like get you know called or emailed or whatever. They also don't even probably know if they have a problem they might not have a problem at all. And they surely don't know about your solution and what it, what it could or couldn't do for them. It, I mean, it, you know, what if, what if a company called, instead of calling their, their leads prospects, they call them people who are unaware, right? Just yeah. change the language, right? Because nomenclature unawares. matters, right? Yeah. The unawares. And you're like, oh, okay, is my email help them make them aware? Or is my email talking to somebody as if they're evaluating my product? I love that, dude. 
Because so, most emails are like talking as if the person's evaluating or considering the product. It's like, they're not even aware. <laughs> what are you talking about? What are you talking about it, savings for? <laughs> well, it's, it's funny because it does the opposite of what good copy does, right? Good copy is you join the conversation in the other person's head. Right. right. A lot of people write emails and they prospect like they're trying to invite the person into their head. The only thing is the prospect doesn't give a shit about you. Nope. <laughs> they don't know who you are. Um, nope. I, I would like to dig into the story piece. This is something that I think is a, an area that I could improve in. You said is, does, means. Can we use a, like a B2B product as an example of like the means part? Because the yeah. is and does, I feel like people really... Well, let, let me, I'll let you take it from there, actually. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's I, use I gotcha. a, like, a, like, a, like a B2B product or something there. I think that'd be a little more relatable. Yeah. So let's take something really generic, like a paperless solution, right? Mm-hmm. So like you've got some sort of paperless solution out there that, that like re- reduces manual requirements. Very common thing, right? A lot of SaaS products try to take on manual tasks and remove them. So most people would pitch saving time and money, right? Uh, save time and money if you don't do this manually, but nobody cares, right? Because you know, that's all we hear all day and we're numb to it. So what it is, it's, it's a paperless solution. What it does is it reduces the workload of manual things, right? It makes it easier for you to get the job done. But what it means is you get to avoid an afternoon wasting time figuring out what went wrong because somebody made a mistake, an innocent mistake. You get your afternoon back, right? That deadline that you have, when it's going to get super, super stressful for you. And of course that manual process didn't go right. And now you're the one on a Friday afternoon having to figure out what the heck went wrong. Nobody wants to be that person, right? That's what it means. It means not having to lose an afternoon. I just imagine being on the receiving end of that cold call. I'm like, yeah, I don't, I don't want that. Tell me more. Right. Right. (laughs) Anybody who lost an afternoon. You're like, like, save me time. Okay. Everyone's making that promise. Right. Sounds too good to be true. You know, that right. kind of thing. Right. So you got it. That's, and, and it's interesting that, so the common mistake that sellers make, and, and again, this took me a while to figure out was that what your product does, the value props, it's actually the inverse of those things. That is the meaning. So what I'm trying to say is like, I save you time. What that means is you don't waste money on things that don't produce for you. Right. Mm -hmm. I don't say I save you money because I save you is me being the center of the sentence, helping you, the damsel in distress, do something better. But me saying to you, you won't be wasting money on something that doesn't work is FOMO. Right. So like now you're you're I'm protecting you from loss instead of giving you a gain, which is which is better for persuasion because the fear of loss is twice as influential as the benefit of gain. That's prospect theory. Loss aversion, right? Right, loss aversion. Prospect theory, loss aversion. That's what they want a Nobel Peace Prize for coming up with that, right? And I'm putting it in terms of your world, right? So you are the center of it. You are the hero. And this is what you're accomplishing as the hero. And I'm just on the sideline watching this fantastic show you're putting on, right? So you, you always have to invert your value props from what you do to what it means. It's always usually a negative. It's a negative correlation, right? So I save you time means you do not waste time doing this. That's how you get your value prop from does to means. Yeah. 
it's so interesting when you think about save time versus waste time. Mm-hmm. I hate wasting time. I hate it. I hate wasting mm-hmm. time on stuff. But when you say save time, that's not how I talk. I don't talk about ways that I could save time. I, I think I think about it like, how can I reduce the amount of time that I waste? That's really what I'm thinking. That's really powerful, man. So with these stories, so I guess to backtrack, this curse of knowledge is the problem with most sales training was where we started. Yeah. And it almost sounds like this is a way that if if I am on the receiving end as a rep of training that isn't that great, this is probably where I could start. Right? Is like what's like what's the basic story of what like our of our product? Yeah, yeah, and 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 you want to kind of tune out the details as juicy and as wonderful and as glorious as yeah. they sound. Nobody cares about how that one feature, you know, lights up green when whatever yeah. the dashboard is. You know, nobody cares. I don't care. And your prospects don't care, especially if they're in the unaware stage. That that's yeah. not, you know, if you're trying to take somebody from unaware to aware. Now, if you're if you've got somebody who's in evaluation mode and they're looking at choices, show them the green button that lights up on the dashboard. That's great. Yeah. But the majority, the significant mass majority of your pipeline and your prospects, they live in unaware and aware. Those are the stages yeah. they're in. And in that messaging has nothing to do with your features or your product. It has to do with problems they have because everyone's getting the job done, right? They're getting the job done. It might not be good. It might not be efficient. It might not be the best way, but they're getting it done. Otherwise, you wouldn't be calling them. They're in business, right? They existed before your call and they'll exist after your cold call. So there you got to think about how do I turn somebody who's getting the job done but make them realize it's, it's not working, man. This, this is, you're not going to get to where you need to be doing it this way for another, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. That's not how it's going to work. Yeah. No, I love that, man. I think another key thing you pointed out there that I, I talk about a lot too, is the fact that they're already getting it done. Mm -hmm. It's not like nothing is happening. So they already have it. Some people come in and think that their product is going to be a lifesaver. And most of the time it isn't. It just makes their life a little bit better. Right. It's that incremental kind of stuff. Um, So you mentioned that number two is the buyer's journey. Is there anything else? Because I kind of cut you off in the the middle of that because I got so excited. Is there there anything else when you talk about like uh, essentially like overcoming the curse of knowledge or or what do we call it? Unlearning? Yeah. Unlearning. Unlearning the curse of knowledge. Yeah. Anything else that, again, um, I'm thinking like someone that like maybe is not getting this great training, what are some things that they can do to kind of spice up their messaging and, and their prospecting? So the, the final thing I can think about that would be really helpful to, to, to do. And again, if I had known this, I was cursed with this knowledge. So everyone listening, you're talking to somebody who, who lived through the curse of knowledge multiple times at different startups, because that's how I was taught, right? The founder sent me down, told me all the stuff around the products and features. And I went out to the world and tried to sell that to everybody else. And it didn't go so well initially, right? So I, I was cursed with knowledge multiple times. The one, one way, the third way to remedy that um, is, is to think about, who the messaging should be focused on, right? So I kind of hinted at this, and this is an idea that others have said before, so it's not my own, I don't take credit for it, but the idea of like, who is the center of the story, right? We are naturally egocentric. We are the centers of our own universe, right? I'm the center of my universe, you're the center of your own. When I write an email, I have to do something very unorthodox, very unnatural. I have to make you the center of the email. 
not myself, right? I have to start saying you, not me and I, and that's not normal. Like it's premeditated. You have to, you have to really discipline yourself to take yourself out of center stage and make somebody else the center of the stage because the role of the seller is Merlin giving the knight in shining armor, the magic sword to slay the dragon. Most sales emails and sales copy, the seller is the knight in shining armor, saving their prospect who's the damsel in distress. That's not the scene you want. That's not the play you want to create. You want to be Merlin. And the difference between the two is people saying things like, our product does this. Our customers do that. We help you do this, right? That's all you being the knight in shining armor versus you can accomplish this. Others in your situation have done that. Here's one way you can take on this task where I'm like, I'm trying to empower and enable you. So it's a very distinct messaging and it's unnatural. Like I got to repeat that. You will like even I till today fall back into writing the message wrong because that's not how our brains are supposed to work. We have to challenge our brains to do something that is not the way we've been hardwired. Yeah. It's very natural to, to do the We help statement. We help B2B SaaS companies, blah, 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 right? And it's the same thing that everyone else says. And it doesn't, because I think prospecting, you also want to differentiate yourself and stick out a little bit. And this is a really pretty straightforward way to to differentiate yourself because it's going to really stick out from what everyone's um, saying. Is there, I'm curious, because there's sort of different schools of thought around this when it comes to prospecting. What do you think about because people are like, oh, you need to have videos. And like some people put like, uh, you know, giphies or like images and they do the equivalent of what I think is, you know, adding a nice, like a crazy spoiler to your car or like a racing stripe or like lights underneath. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's yeah, what I, I think that stuff is versus like, let's just make sure the engine runs well and that we're changing the oil, you know, and that sort of stuff. But what is your take on like the fundamentals and, like what's working right now and is it is it about that fancy stuff or is it really just about that message or something else and i feel like the like the companies that promote the video stuff are ones that are doing the fundamentals right and then throwing on like the yeah. fancy bells and whistles so they'll get see exponential gains but it's like you said if the fundamentals are missing and you start doing the bells and whistles stuff you, you you're not doing yourself any favors. You're just being more annoying. You're just being annoying in a different way, right? Like yeah. just creating noise in a different in a different medium or format, which doesn't help anything. So yeah, I mean, like when it comes to the fundamentals, there's there is no reason why an all text, very basic email can't still get the job done today. If you're doing some of these things and acknowledging that the person who's receiving is probably unaware, right? So you need to talk to them as if they're in, respect that stage, know that they know nothing about your product and know that they don't care about what it is or what it does. They want to know what it means to them. And odds are they're getting the job done anyways. So it's totally okay to acknowledge that. It's totally okay to be like, I know you're getting it done today, right? There's no harm in saying that, right? Like people can do it other ways. We just think this is the best way, right? We just think this is the best way. And I think you'll see it too, right? You just kind of, and I'm a fan of challenger sale. I, I grew up in that environment with other sellers that did it. I thought it was really great to attack the status quo, to not be so concerned about competitors, but to just 
get people uncomfortable with an idea that they've assumed is the right way to do things and show them. And we all know what it's like to be, you know, the last, nobody wants to be the last person on the bus. Nobody wants to be the last person to walk into the lunchroom and have to sit alone. Nobody wants, we are like conditioned through childhood, through adolescence and into adulthood to avoid being the last, being the outcast, being the outlier. So if you can capture that kind of messaging in a basic email and be like, this is where people are going. You seem to be like somebody that can go with them. And if you don't, you're going to be out here alone because yeah. this is the change that's propelling the industry. That story and that message, that's again, all of that was about them, not your product. It was just like, here's what's happening. People are going this way. You're over here. Do you want to stay over there? Because I feel like you're one of these sort of people that would go with them and get into this like better future state that that's powerful messaging. Right. And you don't need a video to do that. Like you can, yeah. you can do that in text. Dude, appreciate the choir, man. I am a huge <laughs> fan of Vidyard and in videos and stuff, but I still have most of the text that I say in the videos in the email. Cause some people don't like want to sit down for a minute and watch a video. You know what I mean? Especially someone yeah. really busy. Um, okay. This might be a really dense topic to get into, but along the lines of challenger sale and this perspective, my, my assumption is that if you've been in as many like founding sales roles as you have, you guys were probably doing stuff that was fairly innovative, right? Uh, in terms of the product and, and challenging that status quo. So how does someone, how do you get started? And we don't have to necessarily focus on challenger sale, but this concept of, my prospects have this belief and I have this belief and I want to see if our beliefs align because if they do, it's just like, Hey, we both like Van Halen, right? If I meet someone else that likes Van Halen, it's like, dude, we're at least going to get along when it comes to music. And and that, that's a lot, you know, uh, versus like, okay, you like NSYNC and Backstreet Boys and like nothing against (laughs) the boy bands because their shit is really catchy. Um, (laughs) but it's like, we're not going to vibe right with that. How does, as a rep, if you're thinking about this, like what is maybe just one or two ways you could get started on even understanding what the perspective out there even is to see like how you could challenge the perspective. Cause it, to me, it seems like such a big, like mountainous thing. It's such a macro thing that you're noticing and it makes you look extremely smart and knowledgeable and a great resource. If you can point out some of these macro things to your prospects. Totally. I, first, I love that question, Jason. You're, you're like dead on with the line of thinking there too. I mean, let's, let's go back to some basic, let's start with the buyer, right? It always starts with the buyer, not us, mm-hmm. right? As a seller. You look at something like the technology adoption curve, people's propensity to change. No matter what you sell, no matter who you sell to, you're asking somebody to change. And change, no matter how easy it is, has a learning curve to it. It has a learning curve to it. And some people are just going to be better at getting across that learning curve than others. No matter how simple your product is, you're asking them to change. And change, people have very rigid, well-defined reactions to change no matter how small or big it is, right? So give a classic example. My cousin still has an AOL email. I have no clue why. The guy's got an AOL email. I'm like, you're crazy, man. Like how on earth he works in insurance. He's not a guy that you're going to go and try to sell the latest smartphone to. That's not your, that's not your audience. Even yeah. though he's young and he might fit an ICP profile, he's not your guy, right? There are people out there that have got flip phones. There are people that have got out the latest smartphones, right? 
that tells you something about them. There are people who lined up to buy those 3D TVs years ago that ended up being a busted technology. And then there's the rest of us who are like, I'm not buying a 3D TV. I'm like, I'm not going out there and spending 10 grand on a TV that may not even pan out, right? So we all have a propensity to change. And that technology adoption curve, right, that, like a, that propensity to change, your ability to handle um, something new and, and your risk aversion to things that you don't know. That is in the startup sales world, and I'd argue just in general, but particularly in startup sales world, the secret sauce, right? It's not about your product. It's not about your features. It's about them. And we used to qualify aggressively at any of the startups that I worked at. When was the last time you tried something new? Because if the person I'm speaking to is not the trier of new things, it doesn't matter what the hell I'm going to show them, right? And I learned this lesson the hard way. Very early on at our second startup, we were, uh, me and the first non-technical employee were doing enterprise sales. We used to switch off on who does the call. So he was running the call and I was just listening. And at some point, the prospect cut him off extremely rudely. Okay, imagine this, Jason, just cut him off extremely like mid-sentence. And he goes, he goes, you know what, Joe? Nobody's been fired from my jobs for spending seven figures on LinkedIn, but you can sure as shit bet that people have been fired for my job for spending six figures on a tool nobody's ever heard of. I'm not buying. Thank you. And he hung up. Wow. And we were just shocked. We were like, wow, that was so rude. And we, we were like reflected on, we're like, wait a second. Like that guy probably just did us a favor. I mean, he showed us that what the mentality is. It had nothing to do with what we were selling, why we were saying, he was thinking to himself, I'm not going to get fired over this. I don't try new things. That's not who I am. I like tried and true. These guys are experimental. I don't need experimental right now in my life. And then we started qualifying that way. We started asking people one single question. What was the last tool you bought? And if the answer was, oh, just last year, we tried this, this, and that, fantastic. You just qualified yourself. If the answer is, oh, we haven't tried anything new in a while. We just use X, Y, and Z. Yeah, this probably is a, not somebody. I mean, this is a great question to ask on a cold call too. Um, if you can get a decent level of rapport with a person. Hey, curious. A lot of the companies we talk to are, you're trying out all kinds of different tools right now. When's the last time you guys tried a new marketing tool or a new sales tool? You know, and then you could kind of be able to objection handle almost right there too. Absolutely. Dude, that's Absolutely. really interesting. So, okay, for someone that doesn't know what the technology adoption curve is, you mind just sharing a, just a little bit about what it is and like what you're talking about with, because there's like a certain subset of people statistically that are going to be early adopters. Yeah, stuff. yeah. There's just Google search crossing the chasm. Fantastic work. Um, a book that's very well known and, and one that's a core staple of like the startup sales world. It, this idea of like you have early, mid, late stage adopters. And, and that's why you see some companies, you know, fade from existence, right? Like Blockbuster. They just didn't get on the fact that people were moving to a different medium and didn't want to go and rent you know, videos anymore, right? Um, Macy's today, and you see all these like department stores, they're just not keeping up with online sales, right? Like people that the people, there are people who understand that change is coming and they're progressive and they try new things. Those are the early stage. And then eventually the technology becomes more well-known and they become mid-stage and then eventually it gets adopted widely and there's the new thing going on. Right. So um, you got to just know where your people fit. There's a chasm in there between early and mid-stage adopters that you have to cross. And that's when companies make really big bucks and grow really, really fast. And that's like the heart and soul of startup sales. Like if you wanted mm -hmm. to, I don't know how long that took, two minute version, that's startup sales in a nutshell. 
it's funny because there's advantages and disadvantages to being blue ocean, right? People are like, I got this new innovative thing. There's no competition. Well, the disadvantage is that you got to educate the market. Red ocean is interesting because I've sold in a lot of red ocean too, where people already know what it is and there's a lot of competition, but differentiating yourself becomes a lot easier because you can focus on you know, some of those things without having to you know, educate so much. Um, dude, one more question before we you know, uh, kind of get into the, the wrap up here. If you could go back and give yourself advice, the very first sales role that you took on, knowing what you know now, like what advice would you give yourself? A number of the things we talked about right now, for sure, because that, that stuff I didn't get introduced to. But I think one of the most powerful concepts I learned later on in sales that I wish I had known earlier was this idea of social paradigms. So like take, for example, our social paradigm right now, right? Like there's unwritten rules on our interaction. Like I can't just pick up my phone right now and start talking because that'd be rude. We're on a podcast. But if you and I stop recording right now and I told you my wife is calling, it'd be totally acceptable for me to just pause and answer that call right? If I'm in front of like a group of people lecturing or doing like a talk, it'd be extremely rude for somebody in the audience to pick up their phone and just start talking, right? Nobody needs to be explained. There's no explanation needed, right? Everybody in the audience knows the unwritten rules of being an audience member and and a speaker, right? So we have these social paradigms that govern us. Um, And the one of buyer and seller is one of conflict. So it's a social paradigm of conflict, right? Because it's opposing needs, the more that you can judo flip the social paradigm to a more relaxed one, the better. So a classic example that I was taught was I did field sales for a bit. And they used to tell us whenever you go anywhere, if that person offers you a glass of water, take it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you drink a bucket of water right before you walked in, it doesn't matter. Take it because the act of them going to get you that water is an act of a host and a guest. And that is a better social paradigm than a buyer seller. Right. And you, there are ways to do this on cold email and cold calls, right? There are ways to do this. Like um, Josh Braun calls them illumination questions. I was taught them as golden questions when I was younger in sales there. There's this idea of like, uh, I call them now like peer questions. Like the question, like if somebody jumped in on this podcast right now, I was like, Hey, you guys want to know about cold calling? I'm like, Oh shit. How do they know what we talk about as sellers, right? Like yeah. they know our secrets. Cause that would be somebody from our tribe would know that all we talk about is like sales tactics. So what's that thing that your buyers talk about between themselves? Like two CFOs in a room, what do they ask each other? What do they talk about? If you can uncover that peer to peer question and use that in a cold call or a cold email, people respond. Cause they're like, Oh my God, this person like, like, they know what we say. This is incredible, right? And you change the social paradigm because a buyer and a seller don't talk that way to each other. Peers talk to each other that way, right? And that's how you get into consultative selling. When you can change the social paradigm, when you're no longer viewed as just a, a seller, but now you're like, oh, I'm a consultant. I'm an advisor. I'm talking to them like a peer and people respond to that. So that concept like blew my mind. I was like, wow, social paradigms, they govern us. And if I can manipulate that as a seller and I can use that to my advantage and get myself out of a lower social paradigm to a higher, better, more, um, more compelling one, then I'm going to be better off. Dude, love it. This conversation flew by me and there's tons of, tons of takeaways here. Um, okay. Two questions before you take off one, what's your favorite prospecting play that you use? If you want to get someone's attention that doesn't know who you are and 
you want to get on a podcast or you want to get set up a sales meeting, whatever it might be, like what's your go-to prospecting play? Yeah, I, I, um, there's a, there's a couple of things, but one in particular that I like is, uh, we were actually talking about it right before, right before the call. And even in your research that you did on me, which was amazing and incredible. And like, you should do a whole podcast just on that. Your research message is like f- finding what their like personal calling is like something about them. Right. And using that, I mean, that Colin talks about it, her flip the script series, which is phenomenal, which is like something personal to them will always be better than anything related to their company. Like my whole thing is like the death, the fluff thing, right? If somebody said death, the fluff to me, I'd be like, Oh my God, they're, you know, they're part of my tribe. They know me. Right. So, um, usually when I, when, when it's like a really key prospect that I know I, I, I really want to get it right. I try to find something personal on them that I can mention, uh, this, the, whatever it might be like, and there's, there's, it's, it's rare that you can't find an executive summary on anybody in the C-suite. Cause usually when they join a company, whether they're current or, or prior, they release, they do some sort of press release and they typically mention like, the the wife or the husband's name, the children's name, the alma mater and all that kind of stuff. So you can find that stuff if you just do some basic Google searching. Love it, dude. Uh, before you take off, what's what do you want people to check out? Where's the best place to connect with you, follow your stuff? What do you want people to check out? Come to deathtofluff.bravado.co. I got a community on Bravado. I think it's over 700 sellers in there. We're, we're all the same tribe. This is the stuff that we talk about in there. We also... We also just talk about what it's like to be a seller. We, I think it's very rare that two sellers would meet and not know what it's like to feel micromanaged or have to fake dials to hit your number or have your commission check, pl- commission check played with. It's stuff that we all go through. And once you start realizing that you're not alone and you're not crazy for thinking it's wrong, it's really, really, really rewarding and it really empowers you. So there's a whole community of sellers out there that get it and love for everyone to join it. Awesome, dude. Thanks for coming on, dude. This was freaking awesome. I'm, I'm excited to uh, to listen back to this. A lot of notes. Thanks for having me, Jason. This is awesome. Thanks for the great questions, man. I appreciate it. Dang, this is one I learned a ton in and took a ton of notes with. The biggest takeaway for me is this concept of story teaching and focusing on is, does, means. It's a it's a better way actually to articulate what I always talk about around skipping features and benefits and talking about the challenges and the results but really think about whatever you're selling, what is it? And then what does it do? And most of the time people stop there around this saves time, makes more money, increases profit, et cetera. But really thinking about like, well, what does this mean for that person? Like, what does that after picture look like? What is that snapshot of the person using this product six months from now? Like, what does that look and feel like? I really, really like that part of it. Um, So appreciate you tuning in. I got a quick favor to ask you before you take off. If you enjoyed this episode, would love an honest review for from you on iTunes. It'll help make sure we can continue getting on awesome guests like Bilal. You can do that at blissfulprospecting.com slash iTunes. We'll take you straight to the iTunes page or just search in the iTunes uh, podcast app. Leave a short, honest review would really help. And thanks again for tuning in. We'll talk to you soon.